The Leo Frank Trial Closing Arguments, Solicitor Dorsey We now present the final closing arguments by Solicitor Hugh Dorsey in the trial of Leo Frank for the murder of Mary Fagan. A powerful summary of the case and a persuasive argument that played a large part in the decision of the jury to find Frank guilty of the crime. It is also riveting reading for modern readers who have been told, quite falsely, that the case against Frank was a weak one and told, equally falsely, that anti-Semitism was a major motive for the arrest, trial, and conviction of Frank. Quote, The Solicitor General for the State, Mr. Dorsey. Gentlemen of the Jury, This case is not only, as His Honor has told you, important, but it is extraordinary. It is extraordinary as a crime, a most heinous crime. A crime of a demoniac. A crime that has demanded vigorous, earnest, and conscientious effort on the part of your detectives, and which demands honest, earnest, conscientious consideration on your part. It is extraordinary because of the prominence, learning, ability, standing of counsel pitted against me. It is extraordinary because of the defendant. It is extraordinary in the manner in which the gentlemen argue it, in the methods they have pursued in its management. They have had two of the ablest lawyers in the country. They have had Rosser, the rider of the winds and the stir of the storm, and Arnold. And I can say it because I love him. As mild a man as ever cut a throat or scuttled a ship. They have abused me. They have abused the detective department. They have heaped so much calumny on me that the mother of the defendant was constrained to arise in their presence and denounce me as a dog. Well, there's an old adage, and it's true, that says, When did any thief ever feel the halter draw with any good opinion of the law? Oh, prejudice and perjury. They say that is what this case is built on, and they use that stereotyped phrase until it fatigues the mind to think about it. Don't let this purchased indignation disturb you. Oh, they ought to have been indignant. They were paid to play the part. Gentlemen, do you think that these detectives and I were controlled by prejudice in this case? Would we, the sworn officers of the law, have sought to hang this man on account of his race and pass over the Negro, Jim Conley? Was it prejudice when we arrested Gant? When we arrested Lee? When we arrested others? No. The prejudice came when we arrested this man, and never until he was arrested was there a cry of prejudice. Those gentlemen over there were disappointed when we did not pitch our case along that line but not a word emanated from this side, showing any prejudice on our part, showing any feeling against Jew or Gentile. We would not have dared to come into this presence and ask the conviction of a man because he was a Gentile, a Jew, or a Negro. 
Oh, no two men ever had any greater pleasure shown on their faces than did Mr. Arnold and Mr. Rosser when they started to question Kendley and began to get before the court something about prejudice against the Jews. They seized with avidity the suggestion that Frank was a Jew. Remember, they put it before this court, and we did not. The word Jew never escaped our lips. I say that the race this man comes from is as good as ours. His forefathers were civilized and living in cities and following laws when ours were roaming at large in the forest and eating human flesh. I say his race is just as good as ours, but no better. I honor the race that produced Disraeli, the greatest of British statesmen, that produced Judah P. Benjamin, as great a lawyer as England or America ever saw. I honor the Strauss brothers. I roomed with one of his race at college. One of my partners is of his race. I served on the board of trustees of Grady Hospital with Mr. Hirsch, and I know others, too many to count. But when Lieutenant Becker wished to make away with his enemies, he sought men of this man's race. Then you will recall Abe Hummel, the rascally lawyer, and Roof, another scoundrel, and Schwartz, who killed a little girl in New York, and scores of others. And you will find that this great race is as amenable to the same laws as any others of the white race or as the black race is. They rise to heights sublime, but they also sink to the lowest depths of degradation. We don't ask a conviction of this man except in conformity with the law which his honor will give you in charge, his honor will charge you that you should not convict this man unless you think he is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. A great many jurors, gentlemen, and the people generally get an idea that there is something mysterious and unfathomable about this reasonable doubt proposition. It's as plain as the nose on your face. The text writers and lawyers and judges go around in a circle when they undertake to define it. It's a thing that speaks for itself, and every man of common sense knows what it is, and it isn't susceptible of any definition. One text writer says a man who undertakes to define it uses tautology, the same words over again. Just remember, gentlemen of the jury, that it is no abstruse proposition. It is not a proposition way over and above your head. It's just a common sense, an ordinary, everyday practical question. In the 83rd Georgia, one of our judges defines it thus. A reasonable doubt is one that is opposed to an unreasonable doubt. It is one for which a reason can be given, and it is one that is based on reason, and it is such a doubt that leaves the mind in an uncertain and wavering condition where it is impossible to say with reason nor certainty that the accused is guilty. If you have a doubt, it must be such a doubt as to control and decide your conduct in the highest and most important affairs of life. It isn't, gentlemen, as is said in the case of John versus State in 33rd Georgia, a vague conjectural doubt 
or a mere guess that possibly the accused may not be guilty. It isn't that. It must be such a doubt as a sensible, honest-minded man would reasonably entertain in an honest investigation after truth. It must not be, as they say, in the case of Butler v. State, 92 Georgia, a doubt conjured up. Or, as they say in the 83 Georgia, a doubt which might be conjured up to acquit a friend. It must not be, as they say in the 63 Georgia, a fanciful doubt, a trivial supposition, a bare possibility of innocence. That won't do, that won't do. It doesn't mean the doubt, they say in 90 Georgia, of a crank or a man with an oversensitive nature, but practical common sense is the standard. Conviction can be established as well upon circumstantial evidence as upon direct evidence. Eminent authority shows that in many cases, circumstantial evidence is more certain than direct evidence. Conviction can be established better by a large number of witnesses giving circumstantial evidence and incidents pointing to guilt than by the testimony of a few witnesses who may have been eyewitnesses to the actual deed. In this case, we have both circumstantial evidence and admission. Hence, with reasonable doubt as a basis, the evidence shows such a consistency that a reasonable conclusion is all that is needed. This thing of a reasonable doubt originated long ago, when the accused was not allowed to be represented by counsel to defend him. In time, the reasonable doubt will drop out. Our people are getting better and better about this all the time. The state is handicapped in all sorts of ways by this reasonable doubt proposition, and has to do more than prove a man's guilt often before a conviction can result. You can't get at a verdict by mathematics, but you can get at it by a moral certainty. People sometimes say that they will not convict on circumstantial evidence. That is the merest bosh. Authorities show that circumstantial evidence is the best evidence. People are improving about this. Yet juries are often reticent upon this point. But juries should not hesitate at lack of positive evidence. The almost unerring indication of circumstantial evidence should control. Otherwise, society is exposed to freedom in the commission of all sorts of the most horrible crimes. Circumstances which would warrant a mere conjecture of guilt are not warranted as the basis for a conviction. But when the evidence is consistent with all the facts in the case, only a conviction can result. End quote. Mr. Dorsey there told the graphic story of how W.H.T. Durant, upon circumstantial evidence, was convicted of the murder of Blanche Lamont in Emanuel Baptist Church in San Francisco. Quote, now, let's examine this question of good character. I grant you, good character spells a whole lot, 
But first, let's establish good character. It is presumed, had he not put his character in issue, it would have been presumed, and the state would have been absolutely helpless, that this man was as good a man as lived in the city of Atlanta. It's a mighty easy thing, if a man is worth anything, if a man attains to any degree of respectability, it's a mighty easy thing to get someone to sustain his character, but it's the hardest thing known to a lawyer to get people to impeach the character of another. In the Durant case, his character was unimpeached. The defendant here put his character in issue, and we accepted the challenge. And we met it, I submit to you. Now, if we concede that this defendant, in this case, was a man of good character, a thing we don't concede. Still, under your oath and under the law that his honor will give you in charge, as is laid down in the 88 Georgia, page 92, proof of good character will not hinder conviction if the guilt of the defendant is plainly proved to the satisfaction of the jury. First, you have got to have the good character before it weighs a feather in the balance. And remember that the hardest burden, so far as proof is concerned, that ever rests on anybody, is to break down the character of a man who really has character. And I ask you if this defendant stands before you a man of good character? Mr. Arnold, as though he had not realized the force of the evidence here against the man who, on April 26th, snuffed out the life of little Mary Fagan, in his desperation stood up in this presence and called 19 or 20 of these reputable high-toned girls, though they be working girls, crack-brain fanatics and liars, and they have hurled that word around here a good deal, too. They have hurled that word around here a good deal. If that's an attribute of great men and great lawyers, I here and now proclaim to you I have no aspirations to attain them. Not once will I say that anybody has lied, but I'll put it up to you as twelve honest, conscientious men by your verdict to say where the truth lies and who has lied. I'm going to be satisfied with your verdict, too. I know this case, and I know the conscience that abides in the breast of honest, courageous men. Now, the book says that if a man has good character, nevertheless it will not hinder conviction, if the guilt of the defendant is plainly proved to the satisfaction of the jury, as it was in the Durant case, and I submit that, character or no character, this evidence demands a conviction. And I'm not asking you for it either because of prejudice. I'm coming to the perjury after a bit. Have I so forgotten myself that I would ask you to convict that man if the evidence demanded that Jim Conley's neck be broken? Now, Mr. Arnold said yesterday, and I noticed it, though it wasn't in evidence, that Jim Conley wasn't indicted. No, he will never be for this crime because there is no evidence. 
He's an accessory after the fact, according to his own admission. And he's guilty of that and nothing more. And I'm here to tell you that, unless there's some other evidence besides that which has been shown here or heretofore, you've got to get you another Solicitor General before I'll ask any jury to hang him. Lousy Negro though he may be, and if that be treason, make the most of it. I have got my own conscience to keep, and I wouldn't rest quite so well to feel that I had been instrumental in putting a rope around the neck of Jim Conley for a crime that Leo M. Frank committed. You do it, too. I want you to bear in mind, now, we haven't touched the body of this case. We have been just clearing up the underbrush. We'll get to the big timber after a while. Where character is put in issue, and the state can't do it, it rests with him. Where character is put in issue, the direct examination must relate to the general reputation, good or bad. That is, whoever puts character in issue can ask the question with reference to the general reputation, good or bad, as the case may be. But on cross-examination, particular transactions or statements of single individuals may be brought into the inquiry in testing the extent and foundation of the witness's knowledge and the correctness of his testimony on direct examination. We did exercise that right in the examination of one witness, but knowing that we couldn't put specific instances in unless they drew it out, I didn't want even to do this man the injustice. So we suspended, and we put it before this jury in this kind of position. You put his character in. We put up witnesses to disprove it. You could cross-examine every one of them and ask them what they knew and what they had heard and what they had seen. We had already given them enough instances, but they didn't dare. They didn't dare to do it. Mark you now, here's the law. Where character is put in issue, the direct examination must relate to the general reputation. We couldn't go further, but on cross-examination, when we put up these little girls, sweet and tender, ah, uh, but particular instances or statements of single individuals you could have brought into the inquiry. But you dared not do it. You tell me that the testimony of these good people living out on Washington Street, the good people connected with the Hebrew Orphans Home, Dr. Marks, Dr. Sun, you tell me that they know the character of Leo M. Frank as these girls do, who have worked there but are not now under the influence of the National Pencil Company and its employees? Do you tell me that if you are accused of a crime, or I am accused of a crime, and your character or my character is put in issue, that if I were mean enough to do it, or if Messrs. Starnes and Campbell were corrupt enough to do it, that you could get others who would do your bidding? I tell you, in principle and common sense, it is a dastardly suggestion.
You know it, and I know you know it. And you listen to your conscience, and it will tell you you know it. And you have got no doubt about it. The trouble about this business is, throughout the length and breadth of our land, there's too much shenanigans and too little honest, plain dealings. Let's be fair. Let's be honest. Let's be courageous. Tell me that old Pat Campbell or John Starnes or Mr. Rosser, in whose veins, he says, there flows the same blood as flows in the attorney's veins, that they could go and get 19 or 20 of them, through prejudice and passion, to come up here and swear that that man's character is bad. And it not be true. I tell you, it can't be done, and you know it. Ah, but, on the other hand, Dr. Marks, Dr. Sun, all these other people, as Mr. Hooper said, who run with Dr. Jekyll, don't know the character of Mr. Hyde. And he didn't call Dr. Marks down to the factory on Saturday evenings to show what he was going to do with those girls. But the girls know. Now, gentlemen, put yourself in this man's place. If you are a man of good character, and 20 people come in here and state that you are of bad character, your counsel have got the right to ask them who they ever heard talking about you and what they ever heard said and what they ever saw. Is it possible, I'll ask you in the name of common sense, that you would permit your counsel to sit mute? You wouldn't do it, would you? If a man says that I am a person of bad character, I want to know. Curiosity makes me want to know. And if it's proclaimed, published to the world, and it's a lie, I want to nail the lie to show that he never saw it and never heard it and knows nothing about it. And yet, three able counsel and an innocent man and twenty or more girls, all of whom had worked in the factory, but none of whom work there at this time, except one on the fourth floor, tell you that that man had a bad character, and had a bad character for lasciviousness. The uncontrolled and uncontrollable passion that led him on to kill poor Mary Fagan. This book says it is allowable to cross-examine a witness, to see and find out what he knows, who told him those things. And I'm here to tell you that this thing of itself is pregnant, pregnant, pregnant with significance, and does not comport with innocence on the part of any man. We furnished him the names of some. Well, even by their own witnesses, it looks to me there was a leak and little Miss Jackson dropped it out just as easy. Now, what business did this man have going in up there, peering in on those little girls? The head of the factory, the man that wanted flirting forbidden. 
What business did he have going up into those dressing rooms? To tell me to go up there to the girl's dressing room, shove open the door, and walk in is a part of his duty. When he has four ladies to stop it? No, indeed. And old Jim Conley may not have been so far wrong as you may think. He says that somebody went up there that worked on the fourth floor. He didn't know who. This man, according to the evidence of people that I submit you will believe, notwithstanding the fact that Mr. Reuben B. Arnold said it was a lie and called them harebrained fanatics, according to the testimony even of a lady who works there now and yet is brave enough and courageous enough to come down here and tell you that that man had been in a room with a lady that works on the fourth floor. And it may have been that he was then, when he went in there on this little Jackson girl and the Mayfield girl and Miss Kitchens, looking out to see if the way was clear to take her in again. And Miss Jackson, their witness, says she heard about his going in there three or four times more than she ever saw it, and they complained to the four ladies. It may have been right then and there he went to see some woman on the fourth floor that old Jim Conley says he saw go up there to meet him Saturday evening. When all these good people were out on Washington Street and Montauk's, and the pencil factory employees even, didn't know of the occurrence of these things. August 23rd. Mr. Dorsey. I was just about concluding yesterday what I had to say in reference to the matter of character, and I think that I demonstrated by the law, to any fair-minded man, that this defendant has not a good character. The conduct of counsel in this case, as I stated, in failing to cross-examine, in refusing to cross-examine these twenty young ladies, refutes effectively and absolutely the claims of this defendant that he has good character. As I said, if this man had had a good character, no power on earth could have kept him and his counsel from asking those girls where they got their information and why it was they said that this defendant was a man of bad character. I have already shown you that under the law, they had the right to go into that character, and you saw that on cross-examination, they dared not do it. I have here an authority that puts it right squarely that whenever anyone has evidence 83 Georgia 581 in their possession and they fail to produce it the strongest presumption arises that it would be hurtful if they had and their failure to produce evidence is a circumstance against them. You don't need any law book to make you know that that's true because your common sense tells you that whenever a man can bring evidence and you know that he has got it and don't do it, the strongest presumption arises against him. And you know, as twelve honest men seeking to get at the truth, that the reason these able counsel didn't ask those harebrained fanatics, as Mr. Arnold called them, before they had ever gone on the stand, girls whose appearance is as good as any they brought, girls that you know by their manner on the stand, spoke the truth. Girls who are unimpeached and unimpeachable. 
was because they dared not do it. You know it. If it had never been put in a law book, you'd know it. And then you tell me that because these good people from Washington Street come down here and say that they never heard anything, that he is a man of good character. Many a man has gone through life, and even his wife and his best friends never knew his character. And someone has said that it takes the valet to really know the character of a man. And I had rather believe that these poor, unprotected working girls, who have no interest in this case, and are not under the influence of the pencil company or Montauk or anybody else, know that man, as many a man has been heretofore, is of bad character, than to believe the rabbi of his church and the members of the Hebrew orphan's home. Sometimes, you know, a man of bad character uses charitable and religious organizations to cover up the defects. And sometimes a consciousness in the heart of a man will make him overactive in some other line in order to cover up and mislead the public generally. Many a man has been a wolf in sheep's clothing. Many a man has walked in high society and appeared on the outside as a whited sepulcher who was as rotten on the inside as it was possible to be. So he has got no good character, I submit, never had it. He has got a reputation. That's what people say and think about you. And he has got a reputation for good conduct only among those people that don't know his character. But suppose that he had a good character. That would amount to nothing. David of old was a great character until he put old Uriah in the forefront of battle in order that he might be killed. That Uriah might be killed and David take his wife. Judas Iscariot was a good character and one of the twelve until he took the thirty pieces of silver and betrayed our Lord Jesus Christ. Benedict Arnold was brave enjoyed the confidence of all the people and those in charge of the management of the Revolutionary War until he betrayed his country. Since that day, his name has been a synonym for infamy. Oscar Wilde, an Irish knight, a literary man, brilliant, the author of works that will go down the ages. Lady Windermere's fan, D. Profundus, which he wrote while confined in jail. A man who had the effrontery and the boldness. When the Marquis of Queensbury saw that there was something wrong between this intellectual giant and his son, sought to break up their companionship, he sued the Marquis for damages, which brought retaliation on the part of the Marquis for criminal practices on the part of Wilde, this intellectual giant. And wherever the English language is read, the effrontery, the boldness, the coolness of this man, Oscar Wilde, as he stood the cross-examination of the ablest lawyers of England, an effrontery that is characteristic of the man of his type. That examination will remain the subject matter of study for lawyers and for people who are interested in the type of pervert like this man. Not even Oscar Wilde's wife, for he was married and had two children, 
suspected that he was guilty of such immoral practices. And, as I say, it never would have been brought to light, probably, because committed in secret, had not this man had the effrontery and the boldness and the impudence himself to start the proceeding which culminated in sending him to prison for three long years. He's the man who led the aesthetic movement. He was a scholar, a literary man, cool, calm, and cultured. And as I say, his cross-examination is a thing to be read with admiration by all lawyers. But he was convicted, and in his old age, went tottering to the grave, a confessed pervert. Good character? Why, he came to America after having launched what is known as the Aesthetic Movement in England, and throughout this country lectured to large audiences, and it is he who raised the sunflower from a weed to the dignity of a flower. Handsome, not lacking in physical or moral courage, and yet a pervert, but a man of previous good character. Abe Roof, of San Francisco, a man of his race and religion, was the boss of the town, respected and honored, but he corrupted Schmidt, and he corrupted everything that he put his hands on, and just as a life of immorality, a life of sin, a life in which he fooled the good people when debauching the poor girls with whom he came in contact has brought this man before this jury, so did eventually Roof's career terminate in the penitentiary. I have already referred to Durant. Look at McHugh, the mayor of Charlottesville, a man of such reputation that the people elevated him to the head of that municipality. But notwithstanding that good reputation, he didn't have a rock-bed character, and, becoming tired of his wife, he shot her in the bathtub, and the jury of gallant and noble and courageous Virginia gentlemen, notwithstanding his good character, sent him to a felon's grave. Richardson, of Boston, was a preacher who enjoyed the confidence of his flock. He was engaged to one of the wealthiest and most fascinating women in Boston, but an entanglement with a poor little girl, of whom he wished to rid himself, caused this man Richardson to so far forget his character and reputation and his career as to put her to death. And all these are cases of circumstantial evidence. And after conviction, after he had fought, he at last admitted it in the hope that the governor would at least save his life. But he didn't do it. And the Massachusetts jury and the Massachusetts governor were courageous enough to let that man who had taken that poor girl's life to save his reputation as the pastor of his flock go. And it is an illustration that will encourage and stimulate every right-thinking man to do his duty. Then there's Beatty. Henry Clay Beatty of Richmond. Of splendid family. A wealthy family. Proved good character though he didn't possess it, took his wife, the mother of a 12-month-old baby, out automobiling, and shot her. Yet that man, 
looking at the blood in the automobile. Joked. 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 He was cool and calm, but he joked too much. And although the detectives were abused and maligned, and slush funds to save him from the gallows were used, in his defense, a courageous jury, an honest jury, a Virginia jury measured up to the requirements of the hour and sent him to his death, thus putting old Virginia and her citizenship on a high plane. And he never did confess, but left a note to be read after he was dead, saying that he was guilty. Crippen, of England, a doctor, a man of high standing, recognized ability, and good reputation, killed his wife because of infatuation for another woman, and put her remains away where he thought, as this man thought, that it would never be discovered. But murder will out, and he was discovered, and he was tried, and be it said to the glory of old England, he was executed. But you say you've got an alibi. Now, let's examine that proposition a little bit. An alibi. Section 1018 defines what an alibi is. An alibi, as a defense, involves the impossibility. Mark that. Of the prisoner's presence at the scene of the offense at the time of its commission. An alibi involves the impossibility. And the range of evidence must be such as reasonably to exclude the possibility of guilt. And the burden of carrying that alibi is on this defendant. It involves the impossibility. They must show to you that it was impossible for this man to have been at the scene of that crime. The burden is on them. An alibi, gentlemen of the jury, while the very best kind of defense, if properly sustained, is absolutely worthless. I'm going to show you in a minute that this alibi is worse than no defense at all. I want to read you a definition that an old darkie gave of an alibi, which I think illustrates the idea. Rastus asked his companion, What's this here alibi you don't hear so much talk about? And old Sam says, An alibi is proving that you was at the prayer meeting where you wasn't, to show that you wasn't at the crap game where you was. Now, right here. Let me interpolate. This man never made an admission. From the beginning until the end of this case, except he knew that someone could fasten it on him. Wherever he knew that people knew he was in the factory, he admitted it, all right. But you prove an alibi by that little Karen's girl, do you? She swore that she saw you at Alabama and Broad at 110. And yet, here is the paper containing your admission, made in the presence of your attorney, Monday morning, April 28th, that you didn't leave the factory until 110. Gentlemen, talk to me about sad spectacles 
but of all the sad spectacles that I have witnessed throughout this case, I don't know who did it. I don't know who's responsible. And I hope that I'll go to my grave in ignorance of who it was that brought this little Karen's girl, the daughter of a man that works for Montauk, into this case to prove this alibi for this red-handed murderer who killed that little girl to protect his reputation among the people of his own race and religion. Jurors are sworn, and his honor will charge you. You have got the right to take into consideration the deportment, the manner, the bearing, the reasonableness of what any witness swears to. And if any man in this courthouse, any honest man, seeking to get at the truth, looked at that little girl, her manner, her bearing, her attitude, her actions, her connections with Montauk, and don't know that she, like that little Bower boy, had been riding in Montauk's automobile? I am at a loss to understand your mental operations. But if Frank locked the factory door at ten minutes past one, if that be true, how in the name of goodness did she ever see him at Alabama and Broad at one ten? Mark you, she had never seen him but one time. Had never seen him but one time, and with the people up there on the street, to see the parade, waiting for her companions. This daughter of an employee of Montauk comes into this presence and tells you the unreasonable, absurd story. The story that's in contradiction to the story made by Frank which has been introduced in evidence, and will be out with you, that she saw that fellow up there at Jacob's. On this time proposition, I want to read you this. It made a wonderful impression on me when I read it. It's the wonderful speech of a wonderful man, a lawyer to whom even such men as Messrs. Arnold and Rosser, as good as the country affords, as good men and as good lawyers as they are, had they stood in his presence, would have pulled off their hats in admiration for his intellect and his character. I refer to Daniel Webster, and I quote from Webster's great speech in the Knapp case. Time is identical. Its subdivisions are all alike. No man knows one day from another, or one hour from another, but by some fact connected with it. Days and hours are not visible to the senses, nor to be apprehended and distinguished by understanding. He who speaks of the date, the minute, and the hour of occurrences, with nothing to guide his recollection, speaks at random. That's put better than I could have put it. That's put tersely, concisely, logically, and it's the truth. Now, what else about this alibi, this chronological table here, moved up and down to save a few minutes? The evidence, as old Sig Montag warned me not to do, twisted, yea, I'll say contorted, warped, in order to sustain this man in his claim of an alibi. 
For instance, they got it down here. Frank arrived at the factory. According to Holloway, Alonzo Mann, Roy Irby, at 8.25. That's getting it down some, ain't it? Frank says he arrived at 8.30. Old Jim Conley, perjured, lousy, and dirty, says that he arrived there at 8.30, and he arrived carrying a raincoat. And they tried mightily to make it appear that Frank didn't have a raincoat, that he borrowed one from his brother-in-law, but Mrs. Ersenbach says that Frank had one. And if the truth were known, I venture the assertion that the reason Frank borrowed Ersenbach's raincoat on Sunday was because, after the murder of this girl on Saturday, he forgot to get the raincoat that old Jim saw him have. Miss Maddie Smith leaves building, you say, at 9.20 a.m. She said, or Frank says, at 9.15. You have it on this chart here that's turned to the wall that Frank telephoned Schiff to come to his office at 10 o'clock. And yet this man, Frank, coolly, composedly, with his great capacity for figures and data, in his own statement, says that he gets to Montauk's at that hour. And you've got the records. Trot them out, if I'm wrong. At 11 a.m., Frank returns to the pencil factory. Holloway and Mann come to the office. Frank dictates mail and acknowledges letters. Frank, in his statement, says 11.05. Anyway, oh Lord, any hour, any minute, move them up and move them down. We've got to have the alibi. Like old Uncle Remus's rabbit, we're just obliged to climb. 12.12. Approximate time Mary Fagan arrives. Frank says that Mary Fagan arrived 10 or 15 minutes after Miss Hall left. And with mathematical accuracy, you've got Miss Hall leaving the factory at 12.03. Why, I never saw so many watches, so many clocks, or so many people who seem to have had their minds centered on time, as in this case. Why, if people in real life were really as accurate as you gentlemen seek to have us believe, I tell you, this would be a glorious old world, and no person and no train would ever be behind time. It doesn't happen that way, though. But to crown it all, in this table, which is now turned to the wall, you have Lemmy Quinn arriving, not on the minute, but to serve your purposes, from 1220 to 1222. But that, gentlemen, conflicts with the evidence of Freeman and the other young lady who placed Quinn by their evidence in the factory before that time. End quote. Quote, Mr. Arnold. There isn't a word of evidence to that effect. Those ladies were there at 11.35 and left at 11.45. Corinthia Hall and Miss Freeman, they left there at 11.45, and it was after they had eaten lunch and about to pay their fare before they ever saw Quinn at the little cafe, The Busy Bee. He says that they saw Quinn over at the factory before 12, as I understood it.
end quote. Quote, Mr. Dorsey. Yes, sir, by his evidence. End quote. Quote, Mr. Arnold. That's absolutely incorrect. They never saw Quinn there then and never swore they did. End quote. Quote, Mr. Dorsey. No, they didn't see him there. I doubt if anybody else saw him there either. End quote. Quote, Mr. Arnold. If a crowd of people here laugh every time we say anything, how are we to hear the court? He has made a whole lot of little misstatements, but I let those pass. But I'm going to interrupt him on every substantial one he makes. End quote. Quote, Mr. Dorsey. He says those ladies saw Quinn. Says they... Saul Quinn was there before 12 and before I left there at 1 o'clock. You saw him at that, did you? Yes, sir. Now, you are sure he did that? Yes, sir. You are positive he did that? Yes, sir. And then Mr. Arnold comes in with his suggestion, and she takes the bait and runs under the bank. He saw how it cut. Then I came back at her again. Now, just to show how she turned turtle. You did see Frank working Saturday morning on the financial sheet? No, he didn't work on the financial sheet. Why did you state a moment ago you saw him working on it? No, sir, I didn't. My lord. Gentlemen, are you going to take that kind of stuff? I know she is a woman, and I'd hesitate except I had the paper here in my hand to make this charge. But if you, as honest men, are going to let the people of Georgia and Fulton County and of Atlanta suffer one of its innocent girls to go to her death at the hands of a man like this and then turn him loose on such evidence as this, then I say it's time to quit going through the farce of summoning a jury to try him. If I had the standing, the ability and the power of either Messrs. Arnold or Rosser to ring that into your ears and drive it home, you would almost write a verdict of guilty before you left your box. Perjury! Perjury! When did old John Starnes and Pat Campbell, from the Emerald Isle, or Rosser ever fall so low that, when they can convict a Negro. Easy, because he wouldn't have Arnold and Rosser, but just my friend, Bill Smith. And for what reason do they want to let Jim go and go after this man, Frank? Why didn't they take Newt Lee? Why didn't they take Gant? The best reason in the world is that they had only cobwebs. Cobwebs weak and flimsy circumstances against those men, and the circumstances were inconsistent with the theory of guilt and consistent with some other hypothesis. But as to this man, you have got cables, strong, so strong that even the ability, the combined ability 
that the erudite Arnold and the dynamic Rosser couldn't break them or disturb them. Circumstantial evidence is just as good as any other kind, when it's the right kind. It's a poor case of circumstantial evidence against Newt Lee. It's no case against that long-legged Gant from the hills of Cobb. But against this man? Oh, a perfect, a perfect case. And you stood up here and dealt in generalities as to perjury and corruption. It isn't worth assent unless you put your finger on the specific instances. And here it is in black and white, committed in the presence of this jury, after he had already said that he wrote the financial sheet Saturday morning, and at your suggestion, he turned around and swore to the contrary. Yet my friend Schiff says, No, I take that back. Schiff says, with the stenographer gone, with Frank behind in his work, that he went home and slept all day and didn't get up what he called the data. Well, he's a Joe Darter. That's what Schiff is. It never happened. It never happened. With that financial sheet that Saturday morning. But if it did, it wouldn't prove anything. He may have the nerve of an Oscar Wilde. He may have been cool when nobody was there to accuse him. And it isn't at all improbable if he didn't have the data in the morning for him to have sat there and deliberately written that financial sheet. Do you tell me that Frank, when the factory closed at 12 o'clock Saturdays, with as charming a wife as he possesses, with baseball, the college graduate, the head of the Binet Brith, the man who loved to play cards and mix with friends, would spend his Saturday afternoons using this data that Schiff got up for him when he could do it Saturday morning? No, sir. Miss Fleming told the truth up until that time. I didn't stay there very often on Saturday afternoon. Miss Fleming didn't stay there all afternoon. Now, gentlemen, I submit this man made that financial sheet Saturday morning. He could have fixed up that financial sheet Saturday afternoon, but he wouldn't have done it without Schiff having furnished the data if he hadn't been suspecting an accusation of murdering that little girl. A man of Frank's type could easily have fixed that financial sheet, a thing he did 52 times a year for five or six years, and could have betrayed no nervousness. He might easily, as he did when he wrote for the police, in the handwriting, a thing that he was accustomed to do, even in the presence of the police, you'll have it out with you. He may have written so as not to betray his nervousness. You've been listening to our continuing audiobook series featuring the best writing from the American Mercury on the Leo Frank case. Be with us next time when we'll continue with the next installment of the American Mercury on Leo Frank.